let's just jump into this and maybe you can introduce yourself as uh and and Cormac why don't you why don't you kick us off and and tell everybody what we're doing and introduce well, your don't... longtime friend here okay um well, uh, you, you're usually better at the the <laughs> intro part. <laughs> I'm gonna let you intro. It's already started. Like kind of blend in. And it's then, already yeah, started. I mean, most likely, this is how it's gonna start anyway. When we edit it, it's just you know It'll me fumbling around with words. Oh, we're, I need to, you know. So, so um, in the last episode, we were talking about doing. We gave everybody homework, and we I had, I had thrown up the idea of hey, homework. let's let's yeah we we <laughs> we've never done homework before, and everyone's at home, so we we felt it was we felt it was appropriate. So, so the idea was to, I mean, this is the best kind of homework is watch a movie and then let's talk about it afterwards. So, um, I threw out the idea of watching Citizen Architect. It's, it's like the 10 year anniversary for the movie, something like that, which is crazy. Right. And, um, and, and Cormac loved the idea. Obviously he has a connection with Rural Studio in Auburn. So I, I knew that that I was, I was just, I had already had this all designed in my head. I just, I knew you it was were all gonna, me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so of, of course this was, was accepted, challenge accepted. And, uh, and so I've actually watched it a couple times now since I threw out that, that idea because, uh, I usually fall asleep during movies to be honest. But, um, this one, when I first saw it was right, I think it was 2015 Cormac at the mm-hmm. AIA convention. Yeah. And, yeah. and we, went to the Auburn alumni reception uh, because my school was not represented there. So I tagged along with Cormac uh, and it wasn't this movie that was shown there, but there was another short film shown at the reception, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it, it was an amazing experience I felt like. And then that kind of opened my eyes to this other movie and which had been out, I guess for about five years at that point. And, and so Cormac said he knew somebody who might be interested in talking about that from from the program, and so that's where you come in. So Steve Hoffman, why don't you introduce yourself, and then you and Cormac can uh, can share some some stories about Auburn and about Rural Studio, and we can talk about the movie. Yeah, well, I'm really happy to be here talking to you guys. This is a great opportunity, and my name is Steve Hoffman, and I work currently at uh, a firm in Portland, Maine. I'm a recent transplant from New York City to Portland and really love my new home here. And kind of professionally and personally, I had this strange odyssey directly from school at Auburn to teaching at the Rural Studio for four years. And then directly from being at the Rural Studio, I met a woman, got married, and moved to New York City. And I always said I moved from a town that had a general store and a blinking light to the West <laughs> Village. Wow. So it's about as extreme as you get. That sounds exciting. Yeah, I was, I was definitely exciting. It was, um, you know, you, it's one of those things where the more I look back at my life, I'm like, what, what the hell? But it yeah. was a great adventure. It's um, that kind of stuff, though, that makes people good architects, I think. Like it, that variation in experience yeah. is something that, Many people don't, and so it does actually influence and you know inform the work that you do. It's worked for me. I mean, it's definitely had its um, impact and and challenges, you know, positive ways yeah. and challenges on my career. 
But I think all in all, I'm really happy for the diversity of experiences that I've had. And also kind of starting out grounded in both the educational environment at Auburn and particularly uh, then at the Rural Studio. I think it was uh, an exceptional basis for becoming an architect. And that's where I felt like I missed out. <laughs> I mean, so, I went to a, I went to a polytechnic university, so we did have a lot of hands-on, but I, I just yeah. nothing like it just doesn't even compare. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, uh, now uh, it's 20, I'd be going on 25, 20. You graduated in 97. Yeah. And Just the studio started in nine. Oh, my God. It is almost. So it'll be 30 years. 93 was when the yep. studio actually started. Yeah. So when you think about that, first of all, usually programs like that haven't lasted that long you know, kind of innovative, new pro, you know, educational programs. So that's really a testament. And I think it's a very different experience now than when it started out. And that's just mm. obviously, you know, things evolve. Uh, and I think it's a really good thing from what I, what I see that they're doing and the few times I've been down there. And it just goes to show that in the life of a program, it's not the same thing from start to finish either, you know. Yeah, you know, it's, it's had to change with the times. I mean, when I went there, I mean, uh, computers were hardly used. Yeah. Now, now they've integrated that into the whole idea of design build, which I think was a really interesting thing to tackle. Would have been exciting to be around when that was going on. But yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's the same time that I was in school as well, and um, the only connection that I have to this idea, this movie, uh, and and you guys, I guess, is that, um, well, besides the, the Auburn reception that I went to was the, was that Steve Bedanes came out and we did a kind of after I graduated, um, session where we did a design build project for FEMA with earthquake relief kind of kiosks. And they had these, these, the idea was that everybody would build kind of this portable piece of architecture that could co go in and deploy and become, because California, earthquake zone, you know, mm -hmm. uh, everyone's expecting the, the big one to hit. And what happens when a city like Pasadena, who's built out of unreinforced masonry, um, gets hit by the big one. And, and so it was like, we, we had several teams doing design build projects and everybody designed and built a FEMA kind of kiosk that they could get information, get supplies from, and that would be, you know, brought in on the back of a flatbed and deployed or whatever. And maybe there was yeah. multiple of them throughout the city. And it was just such a great experience working with him. I've always, I've always been a maker at heart and always been a builder. And I always felt like that was the key to actually being a good architect was knowing how things actually went together because I had done it. Um, right, right. And, and he was just a great, source of inspiration and a, he had a great energy and i think that kind of comes across in the movie as well um and and just his kind of outlook on living on the site and being there and and this is goes back to that that quote that i was talking about earlier from stephen ross in the movie where he just talks about how the design through that process of building it could actually evolve for the better Right. And that situation mm -hmm. and the context could inform previously drawn designs in a way that would make them even more appropriate and more relevant and more beautiful and more perfect. And I thought like I wrote that down because I felt like that is a disconnect that is is enormous in the work that we do in our firm. 
because, mm. you know, it is a handoff on many well, levels. I think that that's that quote is exactly what um, what Cormac, you were talking about um, in terms of interaction in the office. It's the it's the ability to be available for spontaneity and also just to be kind of a fly on the wall mm-hmm. makes you able to. You know, things can happen. You see things that you don't normally see. You hear things that you might not hear if you're not available in that way. And I think a lot of focus on design build is this notion of the the actual you know technique of construction. But I think it shouldn't be overlooked that it just it's a different scenario. It's a different situation. Yeah, right. That gives you different uh, possibilities for knowledge and understanding and interaction that lead that can lead to really good things. Well, one of the things that we were kind of commenting on, um, you know, before we kind of started this conversation was that this new agility, this new mobility that could potentially sp- come spawn out of this new normal, new abnormal, whatever we're going to want to really call it, is just this this flexibility and mobility of the architect to be able to be in places that actually can help inform their design and just the interaction with the client that is something that we don't necessarily do as often as we should within, mm. you know, kind of like the the standard context of how we do things now. Because there are often times where people are on the project that have never been to the site. And one of the things that I most certainly learn from mm-hmm. Auburn is the connection to the site enriches the, the design far more than just taking a set of like as-built documents or maybe a site plan where you don't really truly understand the topography of things and try to fit something on there that you have no kind of like context of what that space is. Yeah. And I was talking about, I was like something as mundane as doing a set of, I'm working on a project right now that I've got almost 400,000 square feet of renovation portion of the project mm-hmm. that being out on site and doing my um, demolition drawings on right. on site walking around not only is going to help me inform like the technical aspect of just doing those particular documentation but it's also really going to kind of inform what I can do with the existing conditions that just looking at a set of like 2D as built really right. is never going to tell me how to actually do that oh yeah Putting your body in the space is gold. Well, that's what architecture is about. It's about place. It's about space. And yet so many times, like drawings are an abstraction of that. And we have further abstracted that by assuming that everybody fully understands what's going on, having never been there. And like a Google Earth overview is good enough, right? Or a Google Street View, if you're lucky, um, if they've shot that street. Right. instead of actually going there and that that further level of abstraction has taken us further away from the work for sure yeah and i think your bo- i think there's a visceral understanding that comes from being physically present uh in a space we all know that you know you've drawn something a thousand times and even with computer modeling i think we all have an innate inner sense of like three-dimensionally oh i think it's going to feel like this and we're always surprised Right. Mm. When you go out yeah. there on the site and it's being built, you're like, oh, yeah. oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, it's bigger yeah. than I thought. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Usually for me. That's or, how I feel. Or, or like even, you know, again, something simple. The example is that, you know, I'm I'm building in 
the mid-Atlantic. And so, you know, over time, you know, there's buildings and then they were demolished and another building was built in this place and then they were demolished. And then now I'm building, building in there. But, you know, hey, somebody forgot that it says remove this building and the as-built beforehand, but they left the foundations in there and things like that. And now do I... Do I ask the client, hey, you know, we're going to have like a couple million dollars worth of change to remove those, or can I retrofit my design over some of these existing conditions? And just really kind of like getting your hands into the soil of things. And I always talk about this on the show in past episodes, and it's it's something that was innately learned from Auburn, is mm-hmm. being able to take people out onto site as a way to let the, you know, to... I, I just um, brought some more people on the project. We lost a couple of people and we needed to add some more people. So I, I brought some people on the project and they're from our DC office. And I had them come up and work out of the Baltimore office for a few days, specifically to take them on a field trip over the course of a few days out onto site to walk the site, walk the existing building, talk to them about, you know, here's the design that we've got proposed here's the existing conditions walk through and have them touch and look and understand all these different interfaces of this new building to this existing condition to truly understand what the hell i'm asking them to do because i can ask them hey do this detail or that detail and it's fine but when that detail is intersecting into an existing condition how does that interact or react to that existing condition and what is the real detail for that because no manufacturer's detail is going to say this is how my detail works with an existing Mm -hmm. building right and so being able to put your hands on it and all that other stuff and and the great thing about coming from where we came from is like you know even the on let's just call them at you know, in studio back at in Auburn, you know, we, we would always do those hands-on projects and things like that. But, you know, getting out to things like the rural studio and the urban studio and things like that, where you're actually able to work within the context of the work that you're asking them to do really makes them understand, you know, what it is that you're trying to do. I mean, I always talk to people about Okay, so you drew this line. What does this line mean? And mm-hmm. being able to take mm-hmm. them out onto site and pointing and say, that line right there that you drew is that beam right there or that column right there. It just looks like a box to you in plan, but that box is this concrete column. And having them really truly understand what the hell it is, because unfortunately, there's a lot of programs out there that really don't do these kind of things. And so when you're coming into it, they're still kind of in like theoretical la-la land. And not really truly understanding what the hell it is that you're going to be expecting them to do. And then ultimately, you want them to kind of like build this this experience knowledge and then, you know, kind of take over from you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it sounds like we're all in agreement that we like the design build model. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And I think it's a pretty I think you can define that pretty Broadly, I think that's another sort of misnomer around design build in the rural studio, even though it is true that what the studio does and what other programs like it do is a potential model for practice that's very particular. I think that the, the, if you will, the philosophy of design build or the mentality of design build is being just a, a method 
where you aren't just dealing with things in a technical or abstract way and you're dealing right. with things, you know, in a larger contextual or uh, hopefully physical way, mm-hmm. not just mental. I think you could apply that broadly to all kinds and formats of practice without strictly being like, oh, I'm actually swinging a hammer. Right, right, um, right. Yeah. Yeah, and, it it is interesting to me how it because architecture. I think it's one of the one of the things talked about in the movie is talking about it being a messy process, and we've uh-huh. talked about that on the show before too. Being very comfortable in that messy process, uh, yes. where where a lot of people are not like they they're used to seeing yeah. the finished product, they're used to seeing it all buttoned up and and you know quote unquote perfect, but the construction process is equally as messy, if not more so. Um, it's definitely physically more messy um, because just the size of the objects and things that you're dealing with, but still being okay with that and learning to, to live through that process and being comfortable with things not being finished or not even like fully thought out. I think that's one of the attractive things to me about the, the idea of design build is you don't need to figure it all out ahead of time. And, and, Mm. you know, kind of going back to that quote that we talked about a minute ago from Stephen Ross and, and talking about how things can develop based on things that you learn along the way and having it evolve even throughout that design. I mean, that's what a design process is, but even through the Mm -hmm. building process and having it inform what needs to be done because you've got new, better information, right? And I think that's probably one of the things that is hard to, even for, for larger firms where you've got to deliver on a deadline and you've got to have the sets, got to include these things that are all figured out right and they're not figured out they're to the the best you can to the best that we can and then later on newer better information equals change order right and that's (laughs) that's hard because because you didn't have that information and so there was no way for you and that's what that's what that's why this is a profession and that's why you know we we have you know insurance and that's why we've got all these things but it also is because we've stepped away from that responsibility and and I feel like the hands-on physical aspect of making changes, like seriously making changes at the last moment, is what is so attractive to me about design build because it is the best information that you have all the way up to the last moment. And you get right. to customize and you know perfect that thing for that place based on that. And I think that yeah. that's just something that we miss out on quite often. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely hard to execute with people's expectations around schedule and budget, you know, in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and things do, and also, you know, there's there's so much pressure um, to get it right the first time, and there's yeah. pressure on the builders. The builders are expected to price it right, right, you ahead know? of time, yeah, yeah, ahead of time, and then yeah, when things change, they want to increase the cost, and I think that's understandable. Our firm does a lot of CM work. Uh, meaning we work with yep. CMs yep. for as a building, you know, delivery method. And I find that I've been lucky. Most of the CMs I've worked with have been very experienced, good builders, and they approach it with sort of that design build to to an extent that design build mentality, where they expect and anticipate, you know, things being clarified. Let's say, if not evolved, but clarified in the field. And we've had some really, you know, to me, extraordinarily positive results 
coming from that interaction with the CM, you know, that is the closest that I've had in a professional capacity of doing design build in a more conventional type of practice. Yeah, I would I would definitely say that, you know, the design bid build method kind of starts to compartmentalize and detach people from their sense of responsibilities. And once it moves on out of their hands onto the next one and then onto the next one, they kind of like there it isn't fully as collaborative as, you know, even with CMs. I mean, CMs are closer to the design bid. Um, or the design build method, especially if you in in both Evan and I've got lots of experience with uh, CMs as well, just because of the nature of public works and, yeah. and controlling the cost and, and things like that, where sometimes you hope that they're a little bit more collaborative and, you know, you, they do the, their constructability reviews and, and, you know, it's just kind of this whole part and parcel of like, I want to do this but I need you to help me do this. And, right. and it's just kind of a very more cohesive uh, delivery method. You know, I, I was I was talking a little bit earlier before the call with Evan about, you know, kind of like the old ways of the architects of the master builder and this philosophy that, you know, they were out there kind of like directing everything. And because of liability and all of this other stuff, we've sort of moved away from doing that. but. I mean, this new mobility that, you know, Evan was kind of mentioning to me or this new agility that architects could, you know, that could spawn out of this, um, this kind of like mobile office kind of situation is being able to be more present on job sites in a more kind of like design build or more engaged CM type effort, you know, and and like I said, Mm -hmm. you know, using that example of just doing, you know, demolition drawings and being able to be out there and like looking at and touching and saying, okay, I'm going to remove that wall, click, take picture, um, input it into the computer, you know, work with the team that's out there with me of architects that kind of truly understand. I mean, the, the level of educational benefits that a young architect would be able to have doing a more on-site, you know, like practice of being able to be there and working with a CM or something like that yeah. is just beyond, you know, I mean, it's the, the, the values just can't be stressed enough. Yeah. Yeah. And we have these great, I think what you're talking about is these great digital tools now for kind of connecting the remote office yeah. to what's happening in the field. It's great if you can have an actual agent of the office in the field uh, on a very regular basis, if not every day. But the communication between builders and the office with, you know, the video. Um, I remember early on in New York, it was right when people were getting, you know, the iPhones and people were adopting, you know, the, the things we all take for granted now. It wasn't really that long ago. Right, right. But, the, you know, the first time I had a, a FaceTime sort of conference with a builder from on site, you know, it was amazing. Right. Yeah, it's just yeah, like, wow. Exactly. And, and he was showing me how something was being framed together and we just talked right through it. And I knew I knew at that moment, though, that if I hadn't had the actual experience of having built something myself mm. through the rural studio, Key component. it would have been a more <laughs> it would have been a more difficult conversation. But it right. was a really great intersection of rural studio, new technology and uh, yeah. 
conventional. All right. So I, 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 when I was asking you to come on, you know, one of the things that you were asking about the angle and all that other stuff, I'm like, dude, it's just chill. It's just very conversational. <laughs> um, but one thing that I did want to like, you know, be very specific about asking you is as a student, you went through the rural studio. At, then, you know, after graduation, you stayed on and you were instructor at the Royal Studio, which obviously were two completely different experiences. Yeah. Then I, then I know you went on to become an instructor later on as and, and uh, as also as a practitioner. How has the experiences not only just evolved, you know, from your experience, but also how has it kind of like shaped both the way that you teach as well as the way that you practice? Well, um, I think in the broadest sense, um, the experience of the Rural Studio just, it, it underpinned kind of the human undertaking of what we do in terms of, it involves a lot of people and those relationships are really the key to success in any at any level um so um and i would say the other thing that has been sort of constant is uh how do i say this like being generous in your approach to what you're doing um and those and those things have nothing to do with it, it, the practice the technical practice of architecture but it was just the context of how how things were approached uh, that it was this you know you're doing things collaboratively and again that's not just in a technical sense that means you have to be open and work with other human beings in a positive and uh, kind of uh, open-minded way and you have to learn to communicate in a lot of different ways and i've found that lesson to be uh, very valuable at every stage of my career and that's the thing and you know your career evolves and you're practicing under different circumstances very different than you know the actual reality of, of what i did in the rural studio but hmm. right. um teaching um i did a little bit of teaching in new york and i have to say that you know what was difficult about the, you know, I wanted New York to be like teaching at the Royal Studio, and it wasn't just for many reasons. But what I did try and bring to that teaching situation was to teach the the sense of resourceful resourcefulness and kind of the uh, self you know self starting, taking responsibility for what you're doing you know in a very personal way. I think one of the other things that you could critique about the profession of architecture, like you just said, is that uh, it necessarily you have a lot of people who need to do a lot of different things, particularly on bigger projects. And so it is easy for people to compartmentalize and for people to kind of look at tasks and just kind of do the task and check it off the list and pass on to the next person. But, you know, the Rural Studio really taught you, I think in the words of David Biggie, to be responsible for the whole thing. Right. And even even in this one little task you were doing, you needed to have that consciousness that it's, you know, you don't, you're not literally um, 
Well, until you get to the upper levels of practice and, and you are steering an entire team of people in a larger office doing a bigger project, I think then you do really have responsibility for the whole thing. And you, you have to see how each little piece uh, fits in. But I think engendering that feeling to every person at every level of the team is an important thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because that was <laughs> um, that was one of the things that you know. Because you know, one of my jobs to steer this team is to take a variety of different experience levels and match them up with each other, so that especially now, you know, because you know, the the biggest worry that I have, especially working remote, is how are we able to enrich and continue to mentor all of these. Uh, younger, less experienced um, emerging architects mm. in a way that we would normally be sitting next to them and talking through them. I mean, I have this, uh, I don't know if it's good habit or bad habit or whatever, but a habit of um, sitting down and grabbing whatever piece of paper that might be next mm -hmm. to me, whether it's a little post-it note or whatever, and sketching mm -hmm. through all of these different ideas with them so that they kind of understand. They'll come up and ask me, you know, Hey, and, and, it sure, and it probably turns into a far longer conversation than they were hoping for. But what I hope is, is that when they leave my desk and we, they're kind of on their path of like doing that, you know, uh, threshold detail for an elevator, that they kind of understand that kind of like that, yes, this is just a small detail within, you know, this broader context, but it all is part of the broader context and you need to understand all, how all of this stuff works together. I mean, now you have this, you know, you, you have your metal frame around a, an elevator, but that metal frame and the head height and all that other stuff is, you know, talking to other things and all of the little things that I'm asking you to do have a bigger role. And so you may feel like your role is just this small little thing, but it really is part of the broader context and having them understand the broader context, you know, it's, it's, Going back to, right. and I always talk about in summer option day one when we were pulled in and they uh, showed us the the Eames video, you know, Powers of Ten, mm -hmm. and 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 although I am just I've been back a couple of times and I was talking to a studio with uh, David Henson, just this this current studio of his, and I was just like, well, have you guys seen Powers of Ten? And they're like looking at me like I've got <laughs> three heads, and I'm like, oh hell no. <laughs> no, no, no. And I start sending them all links to it. It's just like, the, I was yeah. like, you know, we were sitting there when we were forced to watch Powers of Ten, um, thinking to ourselves that, why the hell are we watching this? You know, this this old video doesn't make much sense to us. Right. Until, you know, we started to really, truly understand this kind of this whole macro vision, micro vision and zooming in and looking at something, then zooming out and seeing how right. that little something affects the big something. And and, you know, and, and on many cases that zooming in and zooming out are very, it, it helps make you understand that every part has its, has a role in the, in the greater whole. And, and so trying to like, let them understand and know that they're, that they may feel like they're, you know, just doing a toilet room plan or they're just doing this or just doing that. And maybe it's just because of like the level of experience they have at the time, but trying to truly involve them with the ownership of like the greater whole yeah. is, is something that I kind of strive for. And that's one of the things that, you know, I've pulled from my experience at Auburn and all of my interactions with, with Sam, 
I've, I've resorted, resorted to calling him Sam instead of Sam yeah. for some reason. Yeah. But, but I mean, just, you know, my, my interaction with him was like the, the compassion of, it's not just about, you know, the one individual thing. It's, it's, you know, how does all of this fit together? Yeah. Yeah. yeah one thing I think that. would be really cool to kind of hear from your guys' perspective is like what, because this isn't really talked about in the movie or really shown beyond. I mean, there there's some sketches shown that are wonderful throughout the film that are more for like little title sections or quotes. But what what was the design process like for these projects that got built? And, and from from a student's point of view, but also from the instructor's point of view, because it sounds to me like what's presented in the movie is like there's one project per year. Maybe there's more than that. Maybe there is less. I don't know. But but maybe you guys could just talk about that because all what we really see in the movie is the building process and the the you know the the community aspect of it. But what's it like to go through that design process? How's it? How did it even happen? Oh, messy, messy, messy. <laughs> yeah. But you know, um, just before we head off on that tangent, I have to say the most frustrating thing to me right now with this remote thing is. It is so hard to explain things to people without the ability to draw on a piece of paper mm-hmm. sitting side by side. I mean, yeah. yes, yeah. you can sort of do a certain amount of stuff online, but it just just the quickness, the spontaneity. Um, and like I said, just for me, the visceral, yeah. just it's so much quicker and easier to get it when you have a piece of paper or trace over something. Well, know. that's how you communicate and that's how you've been trained to communicate. And now you don't, you can't have it. It's, it's, well, so, it's a lot harder. Let's just say it's that. a lot harder. I find so, it. Much- so let me ask this. So, um, we use zoom as our tool. And one of the reasons why we made that decision was, and uh, we were just talking about this on a kind of a ma- manager's meeting on Friday with everybody, because, you know, people worry about different security aspects of different tools that we're using and, and this and the vulnerability that the firm has with, you know, using this stuff. And I kind of, you know, applauded them for choosing Zoom over, like, say, Microsoft Teams, because I've engaged with so many different people in, in what they use. You know, we've worked with Microsoft Teams. You know, some people are still using Skype and all of these other things. And so one of the things, you know, that I was applauding them is the ability to be able to have the markup tools so that there mm-hmm. are, you know, the annotation tool is great because we do actually are able to like draw over the top of it and have these conversations. Um, I was, uh, you know, we're, we're, we kind of paired up with, and I kind of mentioned this, uh, that, you know, David invited uh, Air St. Gross to kind of work with them in his current design studio at Auburn because they're doing more of kind of a, this campus planning thing. And, you know, we're known for uh, kind of our expertise in campus planning. And so he had reached out to us and I just heard the words Auburn and raised my hand and said, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I was like, you cannot, it was like, I don't care if nothing comes out of this, but just, you know, like the, a little bit, I want to be involved with whatever we're going to do at Auburn. Cause when I first started working there, they had started we we were awarded the School of Nursing building at Auburn, and I didn't get a chance to work on it because they hired me for my kind of like ability to be able to do a lot of like larger renovation type projects and stuff. And so they had a specific project for me in mind. And so I sat next to the PM that was working on Auburn and kind of just, you know, 
pining over god i wish i could be doing that and they're like oh we're going to auburn i'm like give me something anything a pencil whatever um and so you know we were doing that and the great thing about it is is that you know so now that everybody's working remotely and they we went down there for a little while and they came up here for a little while and then once that was all shut down we kind of like paired up with a handful of students and the great thing is is they go through their process and you know, we've got our cameras on and we're looking at each other in the face and and they pull up their, you know, the projects that the process that they're working on. And from the professionals aspect, you know, we were talking to them about how we would approach it and and, you know, maybe kind of give them, you know, a, a desk crit of things and being able to kind of like draw over the top of them. I, I you know, we were, you know, both he and I were like, you know, flooding back and forth ideas and and all of this other stuff and then to kind of like watch the iterations as he was doing it it's a little bit more of like doing a real quick sketch out you know when you're talking to a client and then say well let me let me go back and kind of work that out a little bit and then mm -hmm. i'll come back to you it's a little more like that than a, the more spontaneity that you get from just sitting there with a sketch pad or something but you know it's it still helps the evolution of that and so being able to do that, I, I really appreciate that. So I'm just curious, like, what what are you guys doing that kind of helps foster, you know, the that remote um, working with within just your coworkers? You want me to answer, or I, just um, yeah, it, well, uh, I had a really interesting experience that I didn't realize this with Zoom, but apparently you can take control of the other person's screen. And so uh, I was working with a colleague, a young uh, young person in our office, and we work on ARCHICAD, okay. and uh, we use the 3D visualization, you know, as part of design and development process. We, you know, don't just look at things in 2D. And I was just like, ooh, there's this little button that says, uh, you know, control, you know, swap control or whatever. I was actually able to use the ARCHICAD on her computer through my computer and just, you know, manipulate the model, move it around and make it the way that it needed to be as a way. And that was the closest to just sketching out a detail to D and saying, no, not like this, like this. But the ability to do that at a distance three dimensionally in the model was pretty, pretty powerful. So I think we're going to be doing a lot more of that. Yeah, I've, uh, taken control of and not let them know that I was doing that. I've, <laughs> I've, I've taken control of a couple of people's blue beam and they're like, wait, who's, who's drawing it? What's going Stop. on? Stop. We've been well, using, uh, we've been using the, the whiteboard app on, on Microsoft teams. And that allows multiple people to be kind of in a whiteboard space all at the same time. It's not anything really like being at the same whiteboard at the same time physically, but it's something. And so it, what we do have it so that it works on, you know, iPad that has the, the pencil support and stuff. And that it works really yeah. well. Um, and then a couple people have the, the Microsoft Surface uh, Studio computers where it's like the big screen that you can draw on, like a, oh, like a drawing wow. board. So it helps a lot. Um, and it, it's nice because you can throw images in there and move them around. And that's probably the closest thing that I've seen to actually being able to collaborate in kind of a, a more analog-like digital environment mm -hmm. where people mm -hmm. can be anywhere and participating in that and still talking to each other over audio or sharing their video, but seeing what other people are drawing. It's, it really comes down to the hardware, like 
because nobody right. wants to draw with a mouse. Nobody can draw with a mouse very you well. Yeah, it's just like drawing with a brick, right? So yeah. you gotta you gotta have some kind of a stylus or pencil input or whatever. That's a really good point. That's yeah. what we need to get. Everybody needs to get a iPad Pro. Or yeah, a... this is not sponsored by Apple. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will I will say probably annoyingly that I tend to draw a lot with the mouse. That the team's just like, yeah, yeah. You know, they just like all I say is don't move the screen. Yeah, and then I just, I, and then they're like, "Oh shit, here comes Cormac. He's going to start sketching all over the place." And sure enough, I start sketching all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> and then the great thing is, is that when you're doing that, you know, you can just do like a screen cap of it, and you know, within the actual thing, it's just it has it hit save, and then you can just like capture all of those moments, and then it pops up when you're done, and you can like grab a hold of that and either move it to a like a a folder on site or you can kind of like move it into like the zoom chat i don't know how many times you guys or how many different zoom conversations that you guys have going on but it feels like i have thousands and you know it's able to just like move some of the stuff back and forth between the conversations just so Mm -hmm. we can have you know it's just like this guy's working on this this guy's working on this this one's you know these these people are over here doing this stuff you know and then i've got like you know broad team then a small team then you know it's just like yeah, it's it is definitely putting my management skills to the t- uh-huh. uh, to the test, um, and being able to make sure that not only is everybody working, but that they understand what they're supposed to be working on, uh-huh. and uh-huh. and like and just really truly understanding. Okay, I've I've given you a task, but do you really understand what that task is? And and not in a condescending way, but just a way of just like say. Look, I mean, normally you and I would be sitting down and walking through all these things. I'd pull all of these different ex- examples together. Am I still able to do that in a remote remote fashion? And, you know, for the most part, you know, we've been doing pretty well. And, and, you know, people don't seem to be being left behind, which I, you know, find pretty thankful. But I also tell them, I'm like, look, if you if you feel overwhelmed, stop, take a deep breath and just talk to me. Yeah. So here's a question for you guys. Do you think that the remote, you know, working uh, situation requires for each team member to, in a way, be more independent than they would be mm-hmm. in a, um, you know, because what I'm finding yes. is like for the people that I am, you know, on my team, yeah, you know, like you said, they're within kind of eye shot and earshot of me would be normally on a daily basis. And I know that I'm going to catch more. Right. Yeah, exactly. But here when I'm checking in with someone maybe once or twice a day, it's like I really have to make sure that when we're apart, they can carry on. So I think that might be a good thing, actually. Um, I definitely agree that, you know, there there's it, it's you're you are definitely requiring them to be a lot more independent, a lot more. Um, responsible for what they're doing because they ultimately are hope, hoping that they understand that you know they're responsible for X, Y, and Z, and because that's all they're doing, you know they you know they they really have got to be like the self starter, and and yeah. so yeah, I definitely think that you know this is helping people grow quicker. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the the one thing, and call this the helping the, or forcing. <laughs> well, 
helping and forcing them to grow quickly. Yeah, some people um, might not want to grow so fast. Yeah. You know, because one of the things, if you think about this, okay, so when when I graduated and I started working for a firm, you know, I was a little bit older, so they expected me to, you know, be more mature. And so they gave me tasks as a project manager on smaller projects almost right out of the box when I didn't even know what the hell I was doing. And a lot of times it would be almost like my old boss treated me like my father would be is, you know, hey, dad, can you, um, you know, tell me this? He's like, well, look it up first. Yeah. Right. Figure right. it out for yourself first. Right. And if you, you know, go through the effort of trying to figure it out. And if you get it wrong, I'm going to be here to help you because ultimately it doesn't serve any purpose to me if we send something out wrong. And so I'll be here to like make sure that it's sent out correctly. And I will talk you through, you know, what is right or wrong about what you just did and kind of help you evolve. And so, you know, I would sit down with sweet catalogs and all of these other things, looking at manufacturers details and, and all of these other things to try to figure out how to teach myself how to do all of this stuff that it's not that he was unwilling to do it. It's he didn't have time to sit down and hold my hand. Right. He had his own things that he needed to do while expecting me to do the things that he wanted me to do. And so I did them and then I would come back down and, you know, check in with him, uh, you know, on a daily basis or whatever and say, okay, you know, here's some of the, you know, print them out and here's some of the things that I would do um, differently. And, and so they would look, you know, and he'd say, okay, you know, we need to do this or we need to do that. And, and so that helped me learn how to basically be kind of like a self-explorer, you know, mm -hmm. figure out where to go. Um, and, and I think that, that now that that's actually, if I say, I need you to work on these window details, I, I'm going to give them examples. I'm going to, you know, show them, you know, who we're using as a manufacturer. And they've been doing basically the same thing, you know, using the digital tools that they have around them, which are global to be able to, you know, work through some of these things. I yep. will say this. There is one thing that I find the most amazing outcome of all of this, because since we moved from hand drafting to the computer, we were supposed to be saving paper. And I would contend that when we turned digital and like CAD and all that other stuff prior cool. to this little thing, we probably used more paper than we did when we were drawing by hand because we had to be so very deliberate on what we drew that mm -hmm. we that we only use right. X amount of paper. Right. And then this one, we're like, oh, shit, we can just, you know, print <laughs> out whatever the hell we wanted to. Yeah. It's free, you know? And so I could guarantee you, I have not hit print other than to <laughs> a PDF on anything in yeah. the six weeks that I've been isolating. Yeah. That's interesting. That's yeah. Interesting. Huge drop in paper. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, if it finally gets us to the point where we're responsible stewards of, you know, managing right. our resources... Awesome. Right, right, right. <laughs> Unintended consequences. That's yeah, a good one. Exactly. Uh, well, it, what you're saying uh, reminds me of something that Sam used to always say, which is, you know, go in there and, you know, he would, he would really, really give people responsibility and trust that they would, you know, who, who were completely not qualified. I mean, you know, yeah. students who had never built anything, you know, they didn't really know that much about architecture. And he'd just say, you know, do it, figure it out, and don't be afraid to get your uh, get the cart in the ditch. You know, there's we'll we'll help you get it out. Like that's what we're here <laughs> for. He had this philosophy of, 
that was really his responsibility as a teacher was to give students the chance to figure it out for themselves and give yeah. them the safety and sense of security that like, you know, nothing, no mistake you're going to make is going to be so bad that you should be afraid, like proceed and be bold. That was that philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really good thing to, to teach anyone at any level in any circumstance. And I, I kind of, so um, I don't even know if you know this, but so like, you know, I was supposed to go out there the first, that first semester for the Shepard Bryant house. And yeah. um, when my parents got into a car accident, I had to stay back. But like I was telling Evan is like the, the thing that Sam did is he knew I was supposed to be out there. He knew that I, you know, missed that opportunity to really be a part of this, the rural studio, the way that, you know, everybody else had, you know, the opportunity to be part of the rural studio because, you know, personal circumstances. But, you know, he was always there for me. You know, anytime he was back at the uh, main campus, come and visit me and stuff like that. And we would always talk. And the interesting thing that I learned from being a part of or having him a part of my life was the compassion that he had for other people, which was kind of the Mm -hmm. whole point of of the studio was I, I couldn't be a part of the studio the way that I was going to be a part of the studio, the way that you were a part of the studio. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was always a part of the studio because Sam made me feel like I was just a part of Mm -hmm. like this greater whole of this greater community. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's the thing that I continue to appreciate about what the rural studios mission really is. And though the mission has sort of evolved and grown up, I mean, it was, it was in its infancies, you know, when Sam was still alive and, the the way that it's grown and developed and where you know you and other people have like had helped evolve it beyond kind of like post sam was it it needed to evolve but the mission was always there you know the compassion for your client the compassion for the camaraderie of your fellow student and you know your future yeah. profession and all that other stuff were always a part of the mission that has never been lost in all of it i mean people sometimes criticize students for going out there cuz as a resume patter and all this other stuff. And, you know, they may go out there thinking that, Ooh, this is going to look great on my resume. They don't leave that way. No, no, they have to earn it. That's the thing about it. You know, you can't fake it out there. No, yeah, <laughs> you can't. You you know. Know. Um, I'm glad give... you say that word compassion. I think that's, that's a really relevant word. And I, and I agree. That's a real reflection of Sambo as a person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and part of what made his made his involvement uh, unique, and actually him as a teacher, I, and, uh, maybe not that unique. I think teachers in general are compassionate people, but uh, definitely was a major part of his character. I mean, there was something. So another thing that, whether it's good or bad for my career, has always been the 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 genuine nature of him mm-hmm. was just something that you know it's just you're going to get me. And that's always been my philosophy of like my life is like you will you will get who I am. You may not necessarily like it all the times. You may no think apologies. that it's fantastic. You know, it, it's definitely no apologies, but it's it's but I will always be there for you. You will always get the compassion from me. Sometimes it's going to be, you know, tough love. <laughs> right. Right. But, but, it, but it is going to be I am never I I have. The, the thing that I learned just, you know, from Auburn in general, but 
you know, from Sambo, uh, you know, in, you know, being uh, DK's TA for multiple times, which, uh, Evan, you'll see DK Ruth in, in the movie, mm-hmm. you know, on several occasions. He was yep. kind of like the the at-campus wing of the rural studio. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, you uh, and, you, and you can't for you cannot forget about DK. I mean, he doesn't get talked about so much now after after all these years. But man, also an incredible individual. Yes. Yeah. And and so and and I learned so much from being around these guys in the way that they're just like true. I mean, they were two very genuine people who didn't have to sugarcoat who they were because they just they actually the term that i always say is like i just want you to give a shit about what you do mm-hmm. and they true in that and it really in a way yeah you know, maybe i learned it earlier maybe you know being in the military and all that other stuff kind of helped in some of that but you know being around people like that who you could just see as an example that they actually gave a shit about what they do Mm-hmm. that you know they do so it brought a level of passion to them whether it was abrasive or or brash or whatever or, um as jay or jack or however he considers calling himself you know says about being in piss and vinegar and stuff like that right, in movies right, right. you know it's 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 about just being genuine to the thing and the one thing that i try to make sure that anybody who's kind of a mentee if you want to call it that of mine throughout my years in the practice is you've got to be as true to yourself as you are. And if, if you are anything that you do, I mean, sometimes, I mean, yeah, doing construction documentation, that sort of sucks sometimes, but, you know, understand if you believe that it is just part of the process of this greater good, this, this final outcome where, You know, the story that I love to tell about this elementary school that, you know, it was six years of my life of doing this one very involved renovation, historic renovation slash addition to a elementary school that it beat us down a lot. I mean, it was hard a lot. But then at the end of the day, when I got to walk through and show the media center uh, people, you know, they were in this like windowless room that was that they had to like package most of the books up because they didn't have enough space for it. And then when I finally gave them a, this, this beautiful 360 degree view of downtown Annapolis, Maryland, you know, where you could see the state house and all these colonial buildings and everything else. And, you know, the water and all this other stuff, they like started crying, you know, Mm -hmm. and they were just like, I don't deserve this. I'm like, no, you, you deserve more than this. (laughs) And it was just like, this is the kind of the whole point of us doing this stuff is that we're able to give them what we believe they deserve, which they may think that they just need a a room with four walls and, you know, a desk to be in. Well, what makes it better than to, you know, kind of give you whatever, but so that's always, you know, something that's been a, um, something that I've carried from all of my experiences of the professors that were part of all of these different Sam and DK and yeah. you know um, and Andrew before Andrew went out there on on site uh, Andrew was out in you know at the main campus and it, it, the the good thing was is being older you know both when I first started there when I was with you and then mm-hmm. left and then went back and then Andrew was there and I was even older and had four years of experience in an architecture firm and going back and 
wrapping up third year and then going through all of these things could make connections with the professors because I was roughly their age, right. <laughs> you know? And so it was, it was great to be able to like engage with these guys and, you know, just feed off of the, the, the passion that they had for the profession, which just kind of continued to keep validating my choice of being, you know, continuing. Cause I could have easily like left when, when I left um, you guys and, kind of just dropped out and dropped off mm -hmm. the face of the map. And I could have easily just said, eh, I'm done. I don't want to do this right. anymore. But, you know, it's through the passion of meeting these people. Oh, yeah. It, it helps validate my choice. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting to think about, you know, when talking about architecture as a social responsibility and the passion and giving a damn and, and all these things. And, and then going into, I've given several presentations in, you know, elementary schools, high schools, you know, what's the first question? It's always, how much money do you make? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, exactly. And, and I mean, maybe there's a, maybe there's just a filter right there, right. Because that, that shouldn't be what it's about. But I think a lot of people do go into the profession because they, they see it as a profession where they can make money. And there's no doubt you can definitely make a good living being an architect, but thinking about this from like the rural studio perspective about serving the community, um, the kind of work that we do, which is public work, which is very community-based. It's hospitals, it's schools, it's, it's things like that. Right. And having that passion, I think that that, that really is, and, and now talking about people working independently and, and really they have to be self-motivated to a certain extent and, and driven um, to, to solve problems on their own first or try to, and then, you know, come up with different options and then present those back and, and, talk to somebody with more experience about why or why not those things may or may not work. It seems to me like that there's a common thread here about, you know, self-motivation, drive, passion, um, and, and service. And, and I think like that to me are the core values of being an architect and even in a larger firm where it is much easier to hide from that, right? You're just a piece of a puzzle that could be very small For, from my perspective perspective like i get to work on the business i'm not working in the business i'm not designing mm -hmm. projects anymore mm -hmm. but i'm working mm -hmm. on hopefully making the process better and making it more inclusive of all of these people and giving them a pathway so that they can become a great architect and have a great long career being an architect um, but really trying to connect them back to i think through programs like this where, where it's it is about people and it is about place and it's about people in place right where you're at. I think that's really interesting because as firms grow and they try to become international firms or national firms or whatever, um, and you start to lose sight of your community and you're just trying to do work for the sake of feeding the machine or, or just doing more right. work or getting media attention or, or whatever those things are, you know, there, there's some, several disconnects that, that have built within our profession and our community and it, and it, it, to me, the, it's really grounding to watch a film like this. And, you know, I told Cormac the first time I saw it, it was, what the hell am I doing with my life? Um, <laughs> I really felt that very strongly. And, and I've, I've done quite a few different things to get to where I'm at experience-wise with design build. And, you know, I, I've got a wood shop and I know I, I love making things. And, and so to me now, my outlet is is working on our business so that it can be a better business so that we can evolve our practice. But, but I really feel like this movie does 
ground me back into why I'm an architect and why I went into this in the first place. Um, I think that it's, that to me awesome. is, is the, the most powerful thing about this. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really great to hear you say all those things. And I'm a big proponent of that. The real point of the studio is all those other things. It's not, I mean, yes, it's, you know, making is rewarding. I think it, it turns people onto that and people realize that that's, there's a benefit to that just in and of itself. But I think these bigger issues that you're talking about, the, the motivation, what, you know, why are you doing this? Why do you give a damn uh, what you just said about, you know, in a place right here, you know, that kind of thinking is really what the studio was meant to be about. At least that's what I strongly feel under Sambo's, you know, origination of it. That was what he, the, art, the architecture part, it wasn't incidental, but in a way it was the means to the other things. You know, mm-hmm. teaching design, teaching the, he enjoyed that. And the building, I think he enjoyed seeing the, the students engage in it. But there were bigger things that he was concerned with in acting for the the education of the students and also challenging the profession to be exactly what you said. The thing that comes along later, you ex- you're exposed to it and you go, what am I doing with my life? Mm-hmm. I think that was exactly the question he yeah. wanted to pose by starting the studio and mm-hmm. doing it the way that he set it up to be. Yeah. So one of the things that I found interesting, it was early on in the movie, you know, you had peanut who was talking about, what are all these guys here? You know, they're just, they want to become architects and right. so they're, dismissive. They're not, awesome. yeah. yeah. But you know, they're not, you know, they, they don't build for me. They build for rich people, you know, and that's constantly the perception that right. we're always fighting within architecture coming from a blue collar auto worker family. I mean, architects really weren't for me, you know, and, and how the hell did I even become, you know, have this desire to actually want to become an architect? Cause I mean, they aren't working for people like me, you know, type idea. Mm-hmm. And then as the studio became more involved with the community and becoming more involved with the people about the community, you know, you see when you revisit him later on, you know, and clearly the years have passed because, you know, you could just see the age on a, on a Jack's face, you know, um, <laughs> that it just, you know, and then he's, and then he starts to talk about, you know, how the effects of the rural studio have had on the community and things like that. That's the thing that I appreciate and have always kind of like taken from people. The education like this, the education like we have at Auburn is that, in in fact, I've even told this to several people just in this past studio that I've been dealing with, with the David Henson studio is there are people who have an impression of Auburn being a, you know, this architecture school in the sticks of Alabama and you know, you're just like hick architects kind of thing. And it's just this, you know, somewhat dismissive about, you know, like I, I've been several times been, you know, treated very dismissively because of my education at a, you know, state school and all this other crap. But hmm. the the point was is that, you know, through like the my work and through like, you know, just my actions, you know, I've changed people's minds on what, you know, like Auburn architecture is all about. But, you know, in a way, 
that that's kind of like to me that sort of seems like the point of architecture in some cases is change people's minds who normally wouldn't have the interface with architects about what architects can do for them and we will have a much greater reach um i don't know if you remember this back in the day uh steve but when we had a lecture in b6 and it was by um crap why am i blanking on his name he's the current ceo of aia what ivy thank you robert ivy and we, but this was back when he was like the editor of architects mm -hmm. you know and he was talking about like the amount of he had given a percentage of like and it was a really incredibly low percentage and it's kind of stuck with me of buildings that are designed by architects because <laughs> right People right. don't have a real use for architects on the low budget side of things. But right. I think that to me has always been like that's where architects are needed the most oh, is absolutely. on the low budget side of things. Yeah, this if is something that figure out a way to work. Exactly. It's interesting yeah. because this this is something that really hits home for me. I've been been doing research on the exact subject that you're bringing up right now, which is and and. And other people have been doing research too, which lucky for me, I get to just cite it. But it, it, you know, there's there's companies out there like Dark Matter Labs um, that are doing research into the effect that architects or people in AEC have on you know the local, the national, the global building supply, if you just want to call it that. And and it's it's crazy how small those numbers are. It's yeah. it's minuscule. It's one percent of the whole built environment. And, and so when you, when you think about who pays for those buildings, it is also the 1%, but it's on the other end of the scale, right? It's the people right, who right. have most of the wealth in the world. And so we're doing 1% of the work for 1% for the 1%. And, and we continue to actually whittle that down and compete against each other because we are so com we're bred to be competitive. Right. Right. Uh, and the right. industry as a whole is very competitive. It's all about doing more for less. And so you're leaving 99% off the table. And what this movie hits home to me about is that it is actually, you can actually make a difference for that other 99% in meaningful oh, yeah. ways where it isn't just a thing that you walk through on a daily basis. It's a thing that it's a, it really is where you spend all your time and it can enhance your life. And and to me, architects have the power to to affect the other ninety nine percent. Yet we continue to, and I'm the we is you know obviously a generalization, but it's continuing to whittle down the one percent for the one percent and do more for less. That seems to me like a completely broken business model. And hmm. when you're talking about you know how can we survive, I we actually just have to reinvent it. I think that what you're talking about is not. It is totally doable. You could build architecture. You could make architecture. Like the global building supply is projected to have to double by 2060 to Ooh. just keep up with population growth of 10 billion by 2050. And and like to put that into like real world terms, they say that you have to build a city the size of New York every five weeks for the next 33 years for that global building stock to double by 2060 that's insane right that's insane that is insane and that's it has to be carbon it's neutral disgusting. like and it has to be carbon neutral did i like how do you, you do that, that? right yeah, so exactly. 
And and so it's like there is so much for architects to do out there. There and and we have to think more broadly about it. And maybe those designs don't have to be as grand, but they can still make everybody's life better. They just have to be repeatable on a much larger level so that more people get to live in architecture, which will make their lives better, which will make society better. Like it, it is this very complicated and kind of interwoven problem, but, but there's so many ways that we can affect that and make it better. Um, and, and to me, like, like maybe you don't get these giant, $450 million commissions, but maybe you get a lot more of these normal, you know, quote unquote, normal commissions and, and you can, you know, marry design and prefabrication and all these things to produce architecture for more people, because not only do we need it, but it's going to make everything better. It's going to make people more productive for society, which will bring up the level of society as a whole. And, and what's crazy is architects have the power to do this. We just have to look at it differently and get out of the way that we've always done it. Yeah. I, I think one of the big critiques, true critiques of the rural studio model is the challenge to find a way to work in communities and scenarios and with frankly clients, types of clients that the architecture profession has not developed a, uh, a protocol, if you will, What's so how, interesting is how is, to work with those constituencies. Architects and it have might always be very different. It might be very low tech, and it yeah. might be, in fact, actually simple and light. And I think you used right. the word agile earlier. Right. It's like you know why do you know maybe maybe the best thing is just an architect can sit down with some people for a few hours and bring the knowledge and skills and uh, imagination to bear. But maybe we don't need all the other stuff. I mean, that's just kind of a, a simplification. But it, I think in a way, the Royal Studio did pose that question of like, do you, to be an architect, do you have to have all this that goes along with mm-hmm. what the profession says that you have to have? And do you have to deliver your projects in this very specific, frankly, it's a, it's a heavy-handed, uh, lots of overhead, you know what I mean? There's a yeah. lot, could be a lot simpler. You might be able to right. affect things more directly. I think I mean, it's it, it's interesting in the movie, like the story arc of Peanut, Cormac, that you were talking about, right? In the beginning, it's like, what have they done for me? And at the end, it's, I can find no fault with the Rural Studio. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and how did that happen? By showing the value of an architect and what it can have on a community. But you had to do it. You had to prove it. And that's what Rural Studio did over all those years, was they proved it. And and, you know, I think a lot of the struggle of being an architect is showing value or proving value. Why do you deserve to exist? Um, and yet, in a, in a context like that, which, like you said, it was difficult, it, it still happened. It wasn't maybe ideal conditions, or maybe it was for this to happen, but it was a place where value was shown and completely changed the perspective of what architects can bring to a community. I think right. That's, well, uh, very interesting. I'd like to give an anecdote because there was a time where I was there was the first rural studio movie um, that was made while we were uh, while I was teaching there, and I did a bunch of presentations with the filmmaker uh, right right as I left the rural studios. The you know right around two thousand and two, two thousand and three, we were going to universities and we and going to AIA's, presenting the film, doing a Q and A, and one of the 
perennial questions you always get, usually from an architect in the office, if you like. So what about the building code? And you know, they always sort of couch um, or qualify the work of the studio by kind of inferring that you know, you're able to be so imaginative and you're able to do these crazy things like build out of straw bale or carpet, you know, because you don't have to follow these rules. And I would always say, well, you know, yeah, we didn't have a code official, and we, but we took life safety seriously. And I get, and at the same time, we didn't have any money. Um, we didn't have any skills. So we found ways to be resourceful within the context of you know how we were working where we were working and still set the bar for quality as high as any other piece of architecture it's like you know i'll trade you you know give me a million dollars to build my project give me you know the uh technical you know a welder who's technically qualified to weld something give me uh, a community full of qualified and educated and expert builders to build my project. These are the things that architects work with every day and still end up building shitty buildings. So it's like, don't, don't qualify it as saying, well, well, you, you know, you're getting away with something. It's like, no, it's like within the context that you're in, set the bar for great architecture and be resourceful enough to find how to achieve it. Don't, you know, the one does not discount the other. It always made me very mad to hear these smug yeah. sort of architects go back and say, well, you know, I mean, that kind of like guerrilla architecture mentality that the rural studio had has always been kind of like beaten down by in, in, in a lot of small, small firm architects and stuff that are just community based that are just working with what they have are very much like that. And, you know, you always have like the greater whole of the architectural community, you know, bashing them down as, oh, this is this isn't real architecture. This is not what architects do kind of thing. And it's so very dismissive. I mean, one of our biggest problems in architecture in general is we tend to eat our own, (laughs) you know, know, and and rather than kind of like enriching each other in the community and stuff. And, and really that is literally the biggest takeaway that I've had from my experience with, you know, those who created the rural studio and, and keep the kind of like that mission alive is what is the best way that I personally, with my experience, can enrich the profession? And I think mm-hmm. that's sort of what we've been talking about. And, you know, it was kind of like our biggest takeaway as we've moved throughout our careers is what are the things that we can do with our, like what we've learned from either back as students or throughout the profession to, you know, make it better and enrich it. And rather than trying to just like knock each other down to, you right. know, and of course, of course, we're not going to like do more than 9% of the building, you know, designed with it. That's constructed within the U S I think that was one of those ridiculously no, low numbers that uh, Robert Ivy was bringing up at the time it was like, just, it was, it was like so ridiculously low is because why would a builder who wants to just do a straight cut and dry building and you're out there telling him, I'm, I, I want X amount of, you know, dollars for this, for, you know, my design fees and this, that, and the other. And, you know, it's just like, I want to do really good work in my community to make it, you know, my community's built environment, you know, the most aesthetically pleasing and nice and cohesive and enriched for the entire community. And, you know, I may not go and ask for like, eight to 12% of the overall construction 
fees and um, maybe I just, you know, will, you know, do 2% or, or whatever, but I've got a bunch of these little projects that's going to keep me afloat and keep my office afloat and all that other stuff, but I'm just going to leave a better mark on it. Mm. I think that's yeah. a great place to wrap it up. Yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to just say thanks to you, Steve, for, for coming on and just chatting with us um, and not making this like a, a complete rehash of the film. I think it's, it's always more interesting to have a conversation around a topic than, than necessarily something that was outlined up front. So thanks for playing along. It, it was really fun. Hey, my pleasure. And great to talk to both of you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Where can, yeah. where can people, you know, I want to give you the opportunity to, to show what you've been or what you're doing now. Can you, do you have a, a website or a, anywhere that you would like people to maybe go find out more about you? Uh, not really. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you're uh, like, I'm trying I'm, to stay under the radar. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm actually in witness protection program. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, the firm that I work for right now in Portland, Maine is called Stephen Blatt architects. And we're a, a small six man firm for, um, uh, this firm has been in existence. My boss has been practicing in Maine and new England for over 30 years. Wow. And has done sixty some school projects. That's our bread and butter. So yeah. uh, uh, mainly elementary, you know, and through high school, you know, not uh, not academia. And yeah, so you can check them out online, Stephen Blatt Architects. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation and to talk to you guys both about kind of your experiences with Sambo and this, the, the rural studio. I think it's just something that I feel like a particular calling toward that type of education and that type of work. And I, I, I really kind of just find the most meaning in it. And, and so for, for me, this has been an absolute pleasure of a conversation to have. Likewise. Cool. Well, until next time. Take care. All right, here we are. We're done.
So this is this totally this is totally what the show's about is just it's a conversation about, you know, our life and architecture and just, you know, the day to days and, and everything, high philosophies, low philosophies, no philosophies, just, you know, whatever. It's a conversation. And, you know, the good thing is, is it's kind of been seven years strong now, Evan. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about the passion. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very impressive. Too, to see that you guys get out uh, globally like you do is really, really something. Yeah. I, I sent him that little snapshot of the <laughs> yeah. the podcaster thing, Evan, that yeah. every so often we're just like. like you. It was, it, you know, when I started getting those things, I was just like, why the hell are people in Russia listening to us? <laughs> you know, it's just like, well, what? They're I mean, all staying but, at home, that's but, why. But, you know, it's fu- <laughs> what is what is ultimately funny about that. And I remember us getting like, you know, people reaching out to us, um, you know, um, like midway through the, you know, our years of doing this. Remember this one, um, Evan, from we got a comment from an architect in Albania. Yeah. Albania, who was just basically saying that they live through the same things that we live through. Yeah. And right. so like the language that we're talking is kind of this very universal architectural language or or architect language not architectural language we're not right. like you know where we yeah, literally are like architecture yeah we're like you know the culture of and like you know the the things that people go through 
in, on a very global level are so very local in mm. issues. And it's just, it's so very cool to like be able to do crap like that. And yeah, yeah. right, cool. And, uh, I'm so, going to be uh, listening to you now. Yeah. That's on my radar. Cool. Yeah. So it's kind of fun. Um, I was, I was uh, telling a, um, I've, I've used this story, I don't know, countless times of, you know, like hearkening back to us in the studio and, and I was just like, you know, my, my, some of my vivid memories of, you know, you are, uh, I'll keep, I'll keep the other vivid memories out. You'll of keep it, them clean. Just, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I always talk about, I was just like, you know, the, the, the thing that I find interesting about how life in architectural studios throughout the country are very similar Mm. Um, but you know, there's this kind of like interesting, like regionalism that you have in all of these different things. Like you can go to a, you know, a Northwest, um, architectural studio and it's completely different from like, like you know, what we experienced in Auburn. It's like, I remember getting off the elevator and just getting hit with this smell of a <laughs> shit ton of, of, uh, crock pots going making gumbo and jambalaya and all this other shit because we were going to be in the studio forever and so you know we were like gotta eat and we were like you know me pulling in a big sleeper sofa and you know josh like building that kind of like weird bunk bed type thing that he had above his (laughs) it was just like (laughs) and then the constant practical jokes that went on and um, I can't remember his last name, but remember the Tony blonde-haired guy? Yeah, yeah. Very. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was from Philly. What was his last name? Oh God, it was Italian. It was. Yeah, because he was, yep. and so he was. He was. He was from Philly, and he was always f- people, and so we, of course, would constantly f- back with him. And yeah. remember when he uh, um, came in to the studio and was messing with people, and they passed out drunk and. I glued his zipper and pants <laughs> shut. Um, so, because what's the first thing you do when you wake up after? You gotta uh, go. Gotta go. And oh my god, I can't go. <laughs> it was the same guy that. Uh, um, Tony, what yeah, was his name? I can't remember it. Um, I can see his face clear as day. I remember I had to like clean out his leg because he played rugby and he was eight man and he for some reason fashioned a coat hanger branding and branded his leg with the number eight. Yeah. This is like, this exactly. This tells you a little bit about Tony. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was intense. Oh man. He, he was, he was intense. Awesome. I, you know, some, some, some crazy, crazy, yeah, crazy people. We had some crazy people. We had some crazy people. And, uh, he, he would, he would come in and he would like steal. So is it, Danny McCatherine, is that? McCatherine is his last name. I think it was Danny. Yeah. Or something. And that he would always chew like chiclete gum. You remember that? Yeah. And Tony would come in and steal it. Like basically come in, grab it off of his desk and like just chug the whole thing. And there's only one thing in the world that looks a lot like chiclet gums. And that is X-Lax. Oh my God. <laughs> See, I don't remember all this, but Cormac is like an elephant. You were actually you were, you were. This was when you were out um, second year in, um, yeah, yeah. And so this was um, this was my. Uh, <laughs> you weren't there to keep me in check. <laughs> oh, 
you were you were you were trouble. You were kind of a troublemaker. You were a bad boy the first few years. You were. I I honestly needed to like leave and grow up a little bit, and that was not. Yeah, I still had a lot of uh, soldier left in me, and that was yeah. probably not a good thing for the architectural community at the time. <laughs>